It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The January 6th committee has been laying out a case for the criminal prosecution of former President Donald Trump, with the last hearing detailing almost minute by minute Trump's refusal to stop his supporters from storming the U.S. Capitol. Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, a committee member, says Trump should face charges by the Justice Department despite the uncomfortable optics of indicting a former president. If there's the ability to move forward on prosecuting and you don't, you have basically set the floor for future behavior of any president, and I don't think a democracy can survive that. So I certainly hope they're moving forward. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Kevin O'Brien, a partner with Ford O'Brien Landy. Kevin, I want to look at this in two ways, before the riot and during the riot. It's pretty clear he did nothing to stop the riot. He sat in a dining room near the Oval Office and watched Fox News. He called senators to tell them they should object to the election results. He fended off pleas from various White House people to stop the violence. Is that enough, not doing anything? Well, it's not a crime to do nothing, except in very, very unusual circumstances that I don't think apply here. In some places, in some situations, there are good Samaritan rules that require actors to take action. And if they don't, they can be charged or sued. We're not talking about that situation here, but I think the significance of the, uh, I think it was 187 minutes, wasn't it? They counted them up in which he did nothing. The significance is it shows what his state of mind was. That's a chestnut we hear a lot about, state of mind. And and I think this makes even clearer than before that Trump's state of mind was he was in favor of what was going on. If he didn't want the violence, which is a stretch, he wanted something to happen to prevent the counting of the votes so he could continue his term in office. He wanted Pence to be scared out of his mind and have to leave the Capitol before he could discharge his duties. He wanted the senators and the congressmen to disperse so they couldn't do their jobs. He wanted something to happen to delay or prevent that constitutional function from being fulfilled. And the 187 minutes 
kind of goes to that issue is 187 minutes is a long time when you're watching the proceedings on television. It's pretty eloquent testimony. And I think that's the legal significance and probably also the the moral and general significance. Representative Adam Kinzinger said the panel has proven a criminal case against Trump. But it seems to me that the evidence is less clear about whether he incited the attack on the Capitol. I mean, there are the tweets and the speech, but he also called for calm at different points. It doesn't seem very strong to me. I think there's some softness there. I, I agree. I think this this would be a difficult aspect in any criminal case. And keep in mind that the evidence gets pared down. A lot of the stuff we hear and read about probably isn't admissible. You know, for example, one of the commentator's favorite examples is all the demonstrators and rioters who said, we went in because Trump told us to and wanted us to go in. Now, unless there's evidence of a conspiracy between Trump and the rioters, and so far we haven't seen that, it's pretty clear. In the absence of a conspiracy, none of those statements are admissible against Trump in a criminal trial. They just wouldn't come into evidence. So just taking that one example, you can see that the way a trial would proceed under the rules of criminal procedure in federal or even state court, because there's the Georgia case going on, which is in state court. The way a trial would proceed is not the way you see it unfolding on television with the benefit of everyone's commentary. And there are a lot of examples of that stuff that wouldn't come into evidence and jury wouldn't hear about or see in a criminal trial. And that's one of the drawbacks that people have to take in mind when they consider what the Justice Department is doing and Merrick Garland is doing in in weighing these potential charges. It's very difficult. There was evidence time and time again that he, especially with the outtakes, that he didn't accept the fact that the election was over. That was no surprise because it's still going on to this day. Apparently, a week and a half before the hearing, he called the Speaker of the Wisconsin Legislature to demand he retroactively take the state's electors away from Joe Biden. Right. I think, again, it's used to show a motive for doing wrong on January 6th and immediately before and immediately after. But you're right. In a way, it proves too much because he's still of that state of mind. It's hard to argue that the criminal scheme is continuing to the present. It's not. Of course, he's not in a position to influence anything now. Once he stood down from office, which he had to do finally, he lost that ability. And that's why January 6th was so important to him, because that was really the last opportunity to try to throw a wrench in the gears and prevent the succession that put Joe Biden in the White House. But you're right. His state of mind, for what it's worth, has not changed. It's still there and seems to be a almost a permanent feature of his mental makeup, probably will be forever. He's never going, I would hazard to predict, he's never going to admit that there was no fraud, the election was legitimate. I've heard conflicting opinions from former federal prosecutors. One is that it's taking the Justice Department too long to indict Trump or to decide whether or not to indict him, that the January 6th committee is obviously out in front of the Justice Department. The other is that it takes time to build a case 
a precedent-setting case against a former president. Which side are you on? I think both those things can be true. Sorry to leave you in the lurch. (laughs) That's not fair. (laughs) Even if they'd started from day one, uh, whenever that is, I guess when they started building cases against these lesser people, building a case against the president does take a lot of time, and they have to take into account this enormous range of actors in the Justice Department, in the White House, in the demonstrators, the people that attended the speech, in Trump's inner circle, all these people have roles to play in the scheme as it's apparently unfolded. And we're not talking about people who are unsophisticated. These people know how to find good lawyers. There are funds being created by various right-wing groups that would enable them to hire good ones. Approaching these people, negotiating with them, getting them to see the light and to tell the truth, And we're talking about dozens of people again. It takes time. And the theory of the case also is subtle because, as you said, you know, he wasn't out there with a Confederate flag banging down the door of the Capitol building. As usual, he's so good at this. He he works by indirection. He makes little hints. He drops little lines, little nuggets that his followers take you know, as a signal to go forward and and storm the Capitol building. But he doesn't say that outright. Many people have said, beginning with Michael Cohen, he's like a mafia don. He doesn't have to say it. He knows his followers would do just about anything, the famous line about standing in Fifth Avenue. And so he just he just does the minimum necessary to motivate them. And then later, when the stuff hits the fan, he has plausible deniability. Oh, I never meant dot, dot, dot. And that's what he's doing now. So to, to take into account all these subtleties, and there are, as we've been discussing, weaknesses in the case that need to be addressed, if not overcome. There is no core conspiracy involving the riot itself, as far as I can see. Conspir- he clearly fomented it. He clearly wanted it to happen. But there's no evidence that he conspired with any of the planners or leaders of the riot to go into the Capitol building that day. Of course, you can argue he didn't have to. He had other means at his disposal. And that's where the, the subtlety of the guy comes into play. It makes it very difficult. People keep pointing to conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding as being the easiest to charge or the most likely. You think there isn't any evidence of conspiracy? No, I think there is. I think, you know, you got to you define what conspiracy you're talking about. I think it's pretty clear there was a conspiracy within the White House with Eastman and all these so-called legal intellectuals that he surrounded himself with. Clark in the Justice Department. All these people came up with these crazy theories that are blatantly illegal and unconstitutional to satisfy and serve him. And then they tried to enact them. That's a conspiracy. That was a plan that was hatched and steps were taken towards it. And that's the definition of a conspiracy. Conspiracy doesn't have to succeed legally to be charged with conspiracy. You just have to agree to an unlawful end and then take some steps towards that end. But that's not the conspiracy that excites people. I mean, (laughs) it's a conspiracy on paper. It may technically be a crime. 
And as I, I think I've said before, it it's not one that has a great deal of jury appeal because it's it's a bunch of half-cocked intellectuals sitting around, gee, what can we do to keep this guy in power? Not that exciting. It may be a crime, technically. The bigger conspiracy is the one that involves, again, storming the Capitol. When you reach the point where you're taking steps under a conspiracy theory, under an agreement, again, if Trump had taken steps based on an agreement with Proud Boys and those folks to get together, get all excited and worked up over the speech, get their troops in formation, and then storm the Capitol and, and go to routes A, B, C, D, Nancy Pelosi's office, and so on and so forth. Now, that's a conspiracy worth getting excited about. Also patently illegal, and more importantly, is dangerous to the country and the Constitution a very, very serious crime. That would be a great centerpiece for a criminal case. But unfortunately, again, there is no evidence so far that Trump ever agreed with the leaders of Proud Boys or Roger Stone or any of those intermediaries he had working for him. Never agreed with any of those folks to do that. Again, he stood back. He made oblique references he incited them with phrases. Uh, it's going to be wild, you know, stand back and stand by. Those are signals to the cognoscenti in these groups, which are hanging on his every word. But there's no agreement based on those kinds of statements that you could prove to actually lead an insurrection and take over the Capitol building. So the way I would summarize it, there, there is a legal case which is rather dry and rather, I wouldn't say it's not worthy of consideration, because it plainly contemplates illegal action. But it was an idea that was, you know, tried on for size and ultimately not carried out. And that that's criminal, because, again, a conspiracy doesn't require many more than a few steps, but not a very interesting case for a jury, and one that you can genuinely doubt should be the subject of a prosecution involving a former president. I think that's troubling Garland. On the other hand, you've got this outrageous riot, which caused loss of life and very nearly shut down the government and overthrew our constitutional processes. But there you don't have a link to Trump. You don't have Trump as a member of that conspiracy. It involves other people so far. So, you know, pick your poison. So I think these are the kinds of questions that may be troubling the attorney general. He's got a lot on his plate. Think, and these are very, very difficult questions. Do you think that in order to pursue a case, in order to prosecute, the AG would want a witness from the inner circle to flip a witness from the inner circle? And then the question is, is there attorney-client privilege? Is there executive privilege? No, I don't think any of those privilege claims hold water. And, and right now, these claims have some traction because the, the January 6th committee really doesn't have the power to force people to testify in the face of an assertion of privilege. They do, but it takes forever, and their time is limited. They've got to move forward, have these hearings, write a report. They don't have time to dawdle with these individual assertions of privilege. The Justice Department, though, could. You know, there's something called the crime-fraud exception, which states, and it's well-established, 
that even attorney-client communications in furtherance of a crime or a fraud are not protected because essentially you're trying to cloak criminal statements and criminal conversations in furtherance of a crime, and that shouldn't be allowed. But that requires a showing. You have to go into court, someone asserts the privilege, you move to compel compliance with the subpoena, and you try to tell the judge the reason why the subpoena should be enforced, notwithstanding the claims of privilege, is we believe these communications were in furtherance of a crime. See the following. You've got to cite transcripts and documents. You have to have evidence. And they have the manpower and the expertise and the powers under the law to enforce decisions of that kind. So far, by the way, I'm not aware of any case in which they've done that, which sort of tells you that they're probably not as far along as one would like. I mean, these are, these are again, high-level decisions. They require a good deal of legal sophistication. You've got to pick your battles carefully. I mean, someone like Roger Stone, for example, or General Flynn or Mark Meadows could be vulnerable in these terms under the crime fraud exception. And undoubtedly, these people, Meadows is pretty obvious from the hearing so far. These people obviously have important evidence against Trump and could provide that link that we've been talking about with the violent conspirators trying to attack the Capitol. But you'd have to go into court with a careful plan and write the briefs and persuade a judge, and then there's an appeal. You get the idea. So far, that work hasn't been done, and that's a little troubling to people who think the Justice Department should be on the verge of indicting after all this period of time. It doesn't look that way, but it would it would have to be done to have the kind of case that you're talking about, June, where you have inside testimony linking the president to some of these outrageous actions at the Capitol that day. Trump is obviously going to run for president again. He's the current front runner for the Republican nomination. Will that in any way insulate him from prosecution? If he runs for office, no, it shouldn't. It has no it has no legal bearing. You know, there is a sort of policy of the Justice Department that you've probably read about in prior contexts that says you shouldn't conduct a political prosecution close to election season. But this has been brewing since the last election. <laughs> right? It's time to bring this to a head. Those policies are really just rules of thumb. They're for internal guidance. They don't have the force of law. Someone, Mark Meadows, for example, couldn't go to court and say, hey, you can't indict me because it's too close to an election season not how it works. It's just a, a policy meant to guide practice within the Justice Department. And, and in certain cases, that policy can be um, overturned or not followed. And that would probably be the case here. No, there's no legal impediment at all to proceeding with a case against a former and would-be president of the United States. Thanks so much for being on the show, Kevin. That's former federal prosecutor Kevin O'Brien, a partner with Ford O'Brien Landy. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Immigrants are increasingly turning to the courts for solutions because of protracted wait times for benefits like work permits and travel authorization. The number of immigration-related lawsuits over administrative delays filed as writs of mandamus has spiked in the past two years. Plaintiffs are projected to file more than 6,200 such cases by the end of this year, according to the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse. Joining me is immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, what are some of the complaints being raised in these lawsuits? The lawsuits that are being filed are based on a number of factors. Yes, they are being filed mostly because of delays in the agency and mostly because of the delays in the issuance of green card applications. But really, they're being filed because there's delays all over the system. There's delays in the issuances of work permits. There's delays in the issuances of travel permits. There's delays in the issuances of motions to reopen. There's delays in the issuances of green cards. There's delays in the issuances of visas abroad by the State Department. And so all of this is leading to a record amount of litigation. Plus, there's also people suing for review of denials of cases because the adjudicatory framework is still pretty much the one put in place by the Trump administration, where the scrutiny being requested in any given case is much, much higher than it had previously been under the Obama administration. That scrutiny hasn't changed under the Biden administration, and so there are still many cases that are being denied that shouldn't have been denied. And so all of that is leading to this record number of litigation that you're seeing in the federal courts. I don't ever remember a time when people weren't complaining about the delays in processing, you know, immigration-related requests. Is this much worse than it was? And if so, why? I would say that the answer to that question is, yes, it is materially worse than it was. And it's basically a case of you don't know what you have until you don't have it. So people, it is correct, June, to say, have always complained that the immigration system is too slow. But they were complaining back then on a state of affairs where for a work permit, it took three months. 
and for a green card, it took a year. Now we have for a work permit, it takes nine months, and for a green card, it takes up to three years. And so because of that delay, that is materially worse. And the problem is we're now a year and a half into the Biden administration, so it's hard to say, oh, well, we've been dealt this terrible hand. Yes, that may be true, but a year and a half in, at this point, one would have hoped that the delays were starting to peak on a downward scale, and we're not really seeing that. The American Immigration Lawyers Association has encouraged members to bring mandamus actions when their clients encounter excessive delays. Doesn't that cause more delays by having another action and having to have government attorneys fight that? Well, the problem is if every single person who has an application files also a mandamus application, then you're just recreating the same line again. So there's no doubt about that. But the idea is that by filing the mandamus litigation, what you're essentially doing is you are saying, hey, remember me, I exist. And when that happens, then the immigration authorities get around to deciding your case, because otherwise they didn't remember necessarily that you existed. So if the delay is truly long, it is not a bad strategy to file a mandamus case. But if everybody filed a mandamus case, then you do have the same problem of sort of a tragedy of the commons situation where everybody recreates the same backlog. And now you have even worse backlog because the agency is not only dealing with the backlog, but all of the lawsuits. But we're not seeing it at that level, obviously, because we're seeing something along the order of six or seven thousand mandamus cases as opposed to millions of applications that are in the backlog. So it's not really a problem that would actually exist that everybody in the backlog would be filing a mandamus case. Do you get a more favorable outcome if you file a mandamus case? So this is an interesting question. A lot of people, when you discuss this, are very afraid to sue the government because they think that the government will retaliate against them and say, well, if you sued me, I'm going to just deny your case because I'm upset. But that actually doesn't happen in practice. In practice, what will happen is if you truly have a case that's delayed and you file a mandamus case, the government will usually try to work with you to issue you a decision. And that decision, I would say 99 out of 100 times, is the exact decision that would have been issued anyway. I've not personally known of a case of retaliation that's happened because of a mandamus case. And so I wouldn't fear filing it because of a fear of retaliation. So has the agency taken some actions to resolve these backlogs? Well, they have done as many things as they can figure out to do at the moment. And so what they've done is for work permit renewals, they've tried to make those longer so that people have to do less renewals in the future. And that's a good thing, but that sort of needs to cycle through the system. So they have to grant all of these applications with longer renewals before they can reap the benefit of having done that. So that's the first problem. They've managed in some of these green card marriage cases that are take up a lot of their time to extend the period of time whereby someone has a green card while they're waiting for their final permanent green card to be issued. So they're doing things on the margins to lessen their caseload. But the problem is, As an agency, they're also dealing with record numbers of asylum cases and record numbers of 
cases where people are trying to fill gaps in the fact that they can't find American workers. And so really what's happening is they're not getting anywhere because even if they can trim down a number of cases, they're still having to get excess cases from all kinds of other sources. And so they're not really making a dent in their overall workload. That was interesting. So why do green card marriage cases take up so much time? Well, because in the marriage context, it's not like a normal green card application. When you marry a U.S. citizen, there's a two-year conditional green card you get first. And then you have to come back after two years and prove, you see, this wasn't a fraudulent marriage. We're still in a real marriage. And only then do you get your permanent green card. And so you've got to basically recreate the process twice. And typically, that green card was only good when you filed that recreation process for a year extension. And so that created work because if the agency didn't grant the new green card within a year, then you'd have to file for another one, et cetera. So now they've extended the period that they have to decide that by extending how good, how valid the green card is while they're waiting. But they actually haven't gotten to the next step of adjudicating the second step any faster. In fact, it's the slowest it's ever been. But this is an example. They're trying to build, in these cases where they know there will be renewals necessary, they're trying to build it so that they don't need to do renewals because they extend the validity of the first benefit that you get, whatever that is, whether it's a green card or a work permit. So I want to turn to a couple of other immigration-related issues. The DACA case before the Federal Appeals Court in New Orleans, what is the issue there? It's in a very strange posture right now, because the real debate that was fucking up sort of all of the energy in the oral argument had to do with standing. And that is that originally the state of Texas, when it was challenging all of these DACA, DAPA laws, had said that the problem was that they had to give driver's licenses to people who had deferred action and that that ended up costing them money. But they didn't end up pursuing this argument. This is not the argument they use for standing now. Now they use arguments related to sort of economic population analysis, but basically just saying that literally the more human beings they have in Texas, the more it costs Texas. And because of this sort of nebulous economic analysis, it leads it up to more of a debate about whether that's true, whether that actually is a concrete and specific harm that gives the state of Texas standing to sue. And so there were debates between the state of Texas and the Department of Justice and the intervening parties who were the states who are kind of the more liberal states and also MALDEF, the uh, Immigrants' Rights Organization. All of these folks got to speak in the oral argument, and we're all making arguments regarding this issue of whether Texas had actually shown concrete harm. There was also another discussion in the argument about whether even if the government could defer someone's deportation, well, could they do the next step and give them a work permit? And here, the Department of Justice was actually not so strongly willing to defend this second concept that a work permit was permissible to give to people who previously didn't have any immigration status. And so I wonder where that's going to lead in terms of a future argument in the Supreme Court. But for now, what everybody's just looking at is whether the case will be remanded for a trial 
on the issue of standing or whether the case will be allowed to proceed to the Supreme Court. So it's going to the Supreme Court any which way? Eventually it will. But there may need to be a trial about whether the jury actually thinks the state of Texas is harmed by having sort of an increased population of DACA people in the state. Because one could say, hey, you know, depending on how you do this economic analysis, more people has always led to more GDP. That's just a a rule. People equals higher GDP. It may not equal higher per capita GDP. But the question is, okay, so the government's going to get certain revenue increases by having more GDP, but is that going to be offset by certain expenses that they have? And it's unclear whether Texas actually met its burden here. The next immigration issue is in Texas, where there seems to be an escalation with Texas Governor Greg Abbott. He's authorizing state officials and National Guardsmen to arrest migrants who enter the U.S. unlawfully and transport them to federal ports of entry along the border with Mexico. Is he allowed to do that? Well, the first step is, what's he actually doing? So that's the first step that needs to be determined. He's he's obviously not allowed to take a human body and move it into the country of Mexico. And I don't think the state of Texas is claiming that they're doing that. They're just claiming that they're basically pushing the person back to point A of entry so that it makes them harder for them to get to point B of wherever they were trying to go when they entered into America vis-a-vis point A. So the goal is just to sort of stifle the ability uh, for people to make it to wherever they're trying to make it to to sort of add to the cost and inconvenience of doing this so that people might be deterred from coming into the United States. I don't know how effective that's going to be, but then the second issue that gets analyzed is when any government entity, federal, state, or local, is taking custody of a human body against that person's will and doing something to it, whether it's putting it on a bus or whether it's detaining that person or whatever it's doing, the question is what authority is it acting under in order to do that? And so... You'd have to show that the person is breaking some law that's allowing the state of Texas to do this. And I don't know what law the state of Texas is going to say is being broken, especially in cases where the person has already been processed by the Border Patrol, as opposed to a case where maybe Texas caught the person, but they never made it to the attention of the Border Patrol. So along those lines, I don't see how there's a case that Texas can make that they have lawful authority to detain a human being and put them on a bus against their will and take them to a location they don't want to be taken to. I mean, you have to have due process to challenge some detention like that. And so there I I just see that failing for that reason. Would it be the Biden administration who sues them? Or would it be, you know, the ACLU or something? Right. It could be anybody. It could be the Biden administration doing it as a matter of preemption, that what Texas is doing is preempted by federal immigration law, or it could be any organization doing on behalf of the people who are the immigrants going through this process, or it could just be a group of immigrants who have had this done to them, potentially suing for injunctive relief or for money damages, even, depending on if they were harmed in some way by this detention and relocation down to the port of entry. 
So U.S. officials on the southern border have processed migrants over one and a half million times so far this year. And they're on track to surpass the record 1.7 million migrants in 2021. When they say they've processed them, does that mean that they're processed into the country or, you know, some of them are deported? What does that mean? What that number of 1.7 million is, is apprehension. What that means is a person has tried to enter the United States in one way or another. Our Border Patrol has encountered that human being and it's made a decision as to that human being. It doesn't mean that the decision that's been made has been to allow that human being to proceed into the United States. In fact, a large number of these individuals were expelled back into Mexico under Title 42, and then they tried again, and then they were expelled again, and then they tried a third time, and then they were expelled again. So those numbers may not represent, or in fact do not represent, unique numbers they're not exactly 1.7 million different individuals who have had encounters with the Border Patrol, but it's in fact 1.7 million total encounters of which some number has been allowed to enter, especially in cases like Venezuelans and Cubans, where Mexico has not accepted those people back into Mexico, and those people can't be deported back into Venezuela or Cuba because those countries are simply not accepting American deportations. And so in a lot of those cases, those individuals have been able to enter the United States. But in a lot of other cases, people have been pushed back into Mexico under Title 42. And Title 42, what's the status of Title 42 right now? I mean, there was an, an order that the Biden administration had to keep using Title 42. Where does that stand? Right. I mean, that Title 42 case is moving its way very slowly through the courts, and the administration is still using Title 42, but it's basically using it to expel almost exclusively Mexican nationals back into Mexico, which still are the largest percentage, you know, of any specific country. They're not a majority, but they're the largest percentage of any specific country coming in. And then they're about expelling about half of the Central American uh, migrants who are being encountered in the border. But if it's people from any country other than Mexico or the Central American countries, we're seeing about 12% of those individuals being expelled under Title 42. Thanks, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.